Alrighty. So, <clears throat> so we exist. We exist in this um, social milieu, in this um, environment of people that are constantly having effects on our behavior. Um, and sometimes other people have performance enhancing effects, and sometimes other people have performance degrading effects. Uh, and so which is going to be which is going to be more likely is a little bit complicated. But generally <clears throat> we talk about two processes in terms of other people's effects on our performance. One of those is called social facilitation. And under social facilitation uh, we tend to have higher performance on behaviors when there's other people present. But those behaviors uh, need to be either instinctive. We talked about instinct and the idea that it's a, not, it's a behavior that's not learned, that occurs throughout the species, and uh, it occurs uh, the same way every time. Um, or behaviors that are highly trained, that you do a lot of training to get good at. So sports, for example. Any kind of sport is an example where you have a lot of training to get good at something. Good question. Cockroaches, one of, one of their instinctive behaviors and something they do very well is running in straight lines. One of the things they don't do very well at, though, is running around corners. Okay. Um, so uh, here's uh, here's what uh, psychologists looked at when they were looking at um, cockroach running behavior. They would put a cockroach in a like in a glass tube, and uh, they would either have it run down the tube alone, or they would have it run down the tube with other cockroaches present outside the tube. And uh, so what they find uh, is that the cockroaches, when they're running through the tube with other cockroaches present, uh, run faster. Except when they have to go around corners. And so if you put a curve in this glass tube, what will happen is the time will be essentially the same, whether there's other cockroaches present or not. So, um, so just this you know, minor change in the situation, minor change in what kind of behavior that we're um, making the organism go through is going to have social facilitation effects. Yeah. Yeah, the corner running behavior isn't instinctive. So, yeah. Now, um, this uh, was originally discovered by a statistician who was working on um, recording and analyzing the um, time it took for bicycle racers to go around tracks while they were training. And so this statistician happened to notice in the course of his data analysis that the bicycle riders who were riding alone tended to go slower in their training 
than the bicycle riders who were riding with other riders at the same time, yeah. That's social facilitation, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Partly in the group, it's kind of like, well, it's not like I can just quit any time, you know, yeah. the sensei's here, so, yeah. So, um, this also works in a surprisingly um, bizarre number of situations. For example, uh, when we eat, uh, if, we, if we run an experiment and we have people eat food, uh, either alone or in the presence of others, uh, they will tend to eat larger meals in the presence of others. They'll also tend to eat uh, meals that are uh, include more uh, fattening foods. Oh, what's that? Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, yeah, that's abnormal. <laughs> um, also, uh, we can demonstrate it in some very simple behaviors. So if I were to take you uh, and train you to put slashes through vowels in a paragraph as fast as you can, and I say, you know, uh, put the slashes through as fast as you can, I give you a bunch of good training. And I test you in a situation where you're doing it alone, and I test you in a situation where you're doing it with other people sitting at the table. You will go faster when there's other people there. Okay? Yeah. Um, I don't know about that. That's a good question. Did uh, what was there a difference in accuracy? I would think not, but um, it might have. There might have been. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Those of you who have worked maybe in work groups and classes know that when people get together and do a job together, not everybody necessarily performs at the highest level, right? So there's, some, there's something weird going on here. And that's uh, a process that social psychologists refer to as social loafing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this explains the post office. Um, so under social loafing, essentially, we work less hard uh, when we're in the presence of others. Um, now, uh, social facilitation is going to kick in under certain conditions, remember? Instinctive behaviors and highly trained behaviors. Um, social loafing is, uh, is going to be in situations that aren't 
um, those kinds of uh, uh, situations. And this was demonstrated by um, uh, John uh, Darley and Bib Latine. Um, I remember they were, uh, if you remember from the book, they were the people that did the bystander apathy research. Um, some of their research looked at uh, behavior um, of individuals and groups, and one of those behaviors was they would take subjects and they would say, I'm going to put you in a soundproof chamber, you're going to have earphones on, and um, either you're going to be alone, or in another condition they would take a subject and say, there are um, two people present, four people present, six people present, and they could hear the other people through the headphones, right? But they couldn't see the other people because they were in their own soundproof chambers, presumably. And so uh, here's what happens. Um, the participants would scream most loudly. I'm sorry, the instructions were to scream as loud as you can in these chambers. And the participants would scream most loudly in the one subject condition when they thought they were alone and there weren't any other subjects doing the same task even though none of the other subjects could hear the person or he couldn't hear, you know, he could only hear the other people through the headphones. Um, when there were two people, the volume of the scream got a little less uh, loud. Four people, a little less loud. Six people, less loud. So the more people that were actually engaged in this task, mm -hmm the person exerted less um, individual uh, effort. Yeah. Assuming happening at the same time, because other things you were talking about with the social yeah. stuff was happening at the same time. So I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 So, um, and this has bizarre kinds of effects on behavior. And one of the issues that it, um, that it raises is this idea of bystander apathy that we don't always respond to emergency situations um, when there are other people present, right? Um, so their, um, their research starts out in a response to um, a newspaper story on a uh, murder in New York City, the Kitty Genovese murder. And what happens with Kitty Genovese is she's coming home late from her uh, waitressing job, I think. And uh, she is attacked and stabbed on the street in front of her apartment building. Um, there were something like 38 witnesses. Um, the other witnesses knew that other people had seen it because the lights went on in the apartments along the street. Um, and uh, nobody called the police or chased the guy away or did anything like that. Now, the facts of this story are actually in some dispute. So um, I'll, I'll warn you that um, some of the facts aren't entirely clear. But um, ultimately, what happened was nobody um, responded. And so that's really why Darley and Latine decided they wanted to um, run this series of experiments to find out when people would help and when they wouldn't. And so what they find from this whole series of experiments they run is um, people have to notice the uh, incident first. If you don't notice, if you're not aware of it, you're not going to respond to it, right? 
They then have to interpret the situation as an emergency and not just a routine, normal kind of situation. This has to be an extraordinary situation that you have to respond to. And then third, um, they have to take some responsibility for responding. Okay. Now the issue with having a bunch of people present in an emergency situation is that um, it's very easy for the responsibility p to be spread out or diffused among all the people that are present. And so um, all other things being equal, if you're in an emergency situation um, and there are 10 people around you, you're less likely to get help than if there's one other person there, which is very counterintuitive, right? Because you think the more people, the more likely one of them is going to be dispositionally influenced to, uh, to intervene. But the situation, the conformity of the group really takes over in these situations. And um, so when you're in this kind of a situation, uh, you need to really let other people know very clearly that it is an emergency, unambiguously, and that you need their help. You know, eye contact, you know, talk to them by name if you can, right? Um, because otherwise this uh, diffusion of responsibility will kick in. Hold on a second. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've heard that too, that um, you need to yell fire uh, in order to get help. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the research on that, yeah. I don't know if she cares about research, but she Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why that occurs, I guess I'll say, um, if it does, yeah. Um, So whether uh, whether you whether people experience bystander apathy really depends more on who is there and how they're responding than it does on how many people are there, right? Um, and what we find with bystander apathy is it tends to be at its highest when we know other people are present but um, they are anonymous or we can't see them. So in the situation with Katie Genovese, they saw the lights going on in all the other apartments, so all of those people were anonymous to each other. They all assumed somebody else was going to call the police, and nobody did. So uh, did you say that I um, showed you the video clip on this already? Yeah, I showed it in here. Okay. When did I show it to you? Last week. Wow. That's bizarre. When did we talk about bystander apathy? That's weird.
Oh, was I going off on a tangent or something? Oh. Oh, we talked about the self-serving bias. Huh? Even I remember something about bias in the We we touched on it. Influences on conformity. But it might have been a tangent. Okay. Okay. Then I don't need to show you this uh, video clip. Hey, I haven't seen it, so show it. <laughs> well, let me show you a different one instead. Um, this is uh, a similar phenomenon, but it's not specifically, it, it, it's, it's related to bystander apathy, but it's fundamentally just um, the power of the group and the diffusion of responsibility situation. And this is very similar to a series of experiments that um, Darley and Lottenay ran, which involved um, there being a fire in the next room. And if one person was present, they were much more likely to leave the room and um, go get help than if there were multiple people present. Um, so uh, I'll show you what this looks like. This hotel conference room has been prepared for a focus group discussion. I didn't show you this one, right? Shopping. Okay. But all is not as it seems. The place is rigged with four hidden cameras, six concealed microphones. Professor Abrams is watching from a control room set up in an adjoining conference room. The first participant is Mary Mizuno, a London student who thinks she's arrived early. What she doesn't know is that behind this door, there's about to be a serious fire in the hotel kitchen, or at least the illusion of one created by a smoke machine and some sound effects. What will she do? Ah, she's now noticed the smoke and is concerned. At this point, she decides to investigate to find out what's going on. She's immediately taken responsibility for figuring out what to do. Mary does the sensible thing and evacuates quickly. She even leaves her bag and coat. As I've never been in a fire situation before, I tried to remember the kind of things that you're supposed to do, so I left my stuff and, and just went out. But Mary was on her own. This time, there are seven actors planted in the room who are all in on the experiment. They've been told, when you see the smoke, do nothing. The second participant is John Riccio, an American living in London. What will he do? The norms for this sort of situation are like being in an exam. It's just to continue with the task in silence without communicating until everybody's finished. 
And he seems to be following this kind of script or rule for this situation. There doesn't seem any reason to do anything different. Nobody else is, after all. But what will happen when the situation becomes unusual and the room fills with smoke? Nothing to start with, but the alarm gets his attention. Now he's looked over and noticed the smoke in the door, clearly a bit concerned. Now how long before he dashes out of the room? He's laughing, which is a sign of anxiety, not amusement. And now he's wondering what to do. No one was, was really showing any interest in, in the smoke, so I just kept doing what I was doing and concentrating the survey, basically, that's it. Previous research suggests that <laughs> many people in this situation will simply sit in the room until the smoke becomes so overwhelming it's not possible to see the others. <laughs> John stayed in the room for 15 minutes after spotting the fire. Concerned but immobile. Fire department officials say that if this fire had been real, even if flames hadn't burnt through the door, it is likely that he would have died of asphyxiation. In the end, he left only after he was told to do so. You know, I'm just a human being, you know, just like everybody else, I guess. In a sense, we are individuals, but at the same time, I think we're pack animals, you know, too. And we're going to react in the way our peers react. The experiment was conducted 10 times, and the same thing happened over and over again. If the person was on their own, they left quickly. If they were in a group of three or more, they stayed, rooted to the spot. And the average length of time they stayed, 13 minutes. In real fires, people often die because of behavior like this. In 1979, a fire at a Woolworths in Manchester, England killed 10 people. The fire occurred during the day when the store was occupied by hundreds of people. Most of those people managed to get out quite safely. The people that died in the fire were actually using the restaurant at the time. But why so many fatalities in the restaurant? Investigators eventually determined that people simply hadn't evacuated. They waited to pay their bills. That was their routine. We go into a restaurant. We, we sit down, the waiter comes over, we choose a meal, we eat the meal, we pay for the meal, and then we leave <laughs> the building. That's our script, if you like, for eating a meal. Worse still, everyone was following the same script, and no one wanted to be the <coughs> one to stray. One of the main reasons why people died in the is because they didn't want to be the first to react. They didn't want to stand out to the crowd and went along with the, the crowd behavior. Only one person in the fire experiment refused to go along with the crowd behavior, James McKechnie. What's that coming up from under the table? Is it fire? James isn't going to sit in a dangerous room just because everyone else does. <laughs> or is he? 
The power of the group proves irresistible. The reassurances of the rest of the group that somebody else is responsible seem to be sufficient to pull him back into place. Instead of leaving the room and calling for help, he sits back down again and waits. Yeah, I think they would. Now everybody's looking at the smoke, but in some ways that gives the group even more influence. After all, if everybody can see the smoke and no one's panicking, well, it would be crazy for him to do it too. James stays in the room for another <laughs> 10 minutes before finally leaving. In a real fire, he wouldn't have been able to leave. He'd have been unconscious and close to suffocation. It's just um, sort of reassurance and being swayed by the fact that they weren't reacting in any sort of panic way, which made me feel that I should maybe just act as it. So um, that really gives you a sense of how powerful groups are in, um, in hit maybe inhibiting our uh, behaviors. He was so close, he was so close. yeah. Yeah. If they weren't actors, like if it was just a group of people, kind of like at the restaurant, where no one responded, and if he had responded and been like, "There's a fire," everyone else would have been like, "Yup," and everyone would have run. Yeah. 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 The right. They're all just they're all subjects, not just one guy. Where's the? Well, that's not that's no fun. <laughs> we want well, to. You might you might be they might all do that. They might you might see them. That's a sociology experiment, not a psychology experiment. We want to find out the individual, how the individual responds. Well, yeah. I mean, just with all those people, the bystander thing. I mean, in real life, everybody doesn't know everybody, and everybody, you know, everybody's the subject. Once one person gets up, then that gives the permission for the second person to do it. So they could have had one of the subject, one of the Confederates, get up, and that would have given him the permission or them the permission to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, my dad is a fire inspector. Again, everyone hates, but he's told me about buildings where he'll go into it, and the fire alarm will go off two or three times a day, and people are just sitting there, and they're like, oh, it's normal, and he'll be like, you got to fix your fire alarm. And he'll be like, oh, thousands of dollars. He's like, dude, this is not big. I mean, just, you know, just notice it. They're all like the fire alarm. Yeah. And people just don't get it. Yeah. I had uh, somebody tell me that um, one of their instructors, when they were having the fire alarms here on campus, um, just basically told his class, well, it's just a, it's just a test, so we're just going to stay in class. It's like, um, no. <laughs> um, was this experiment done at all with like a second person that was planted in the room? Right. Well, that's what that's what we were suggesting is, if you had a if you had someone who would jump up, would it? Or a friend of theirs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then that creates a group that they can be part of, and then. That's a whole different ball game, yeah. Yeah. When I'm I'm volunteering for OMSI and during the OMSI um, orientation you have to go through for five hours, they make it very, very, very clear that OMSI does not do fire drills. Like they mm. make it you because most people would just assume it was a drill and walk out to the tree and stop. I mean, so they make it very clear to you that it's not a fire drill, you hear it, it's real. Yeah, and if everybody just kind of sits around while the alarm's going off, it's kind of like, okay, I guess this is normal. Yeah. The, the last fire drill that happened this term, I was in the comments, and the fire alarm went off, 
I knew that it was scheduled, and I, did, I just continued eating until like, someone came by and yelled at me. Good. I'm glad somebody did yell at you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so this, so mostly what we've been talking about up to this point is kind of individuals and how they respond to groups. But what about groups responding to groups? Um, how do we organize ourselves into groups and how do we think about ourselves as part of groups and the other members of our groups and the other members of other groups? And so, Broadly, in so sociology and social psych, we uh, tend to talk about uh, two, two types of groups in groups, so individuals essentially who are similar to us, right? They are in some way associated with us. And um, we identify with them in the situation, right? And what we find is that when we make attributions about people's behavior, there is a strong bias toward um, making uh, flattering attributions for our in-group members' behavior and making unflattering attributions for out-group member behavior, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. It is very counterintuitive. Uh, that um, you know, that's a situation where they find a sense of identity in that uh, abnormal attribution. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then when we talk about outgroups, we mean groups, people that aren't in our in-group, essentially. Everybody else out there is part of an outgroup. Yeah. <laughs> so um, here's what happens. Um, notice, notice how uh, I say we identify with people in our in-group in a particular situation. Here's what happened to me um, not too long ago. This is uh, September of 2001. And um, I had gone to... Um, graduate school in uh, Canada. So I was living in uh, Vancouver. And when I left, um, I remember being part of uh, one group of people. Um, I, was, uh, I had voted for Ralph Nader in the 2000 election. And then And then, uh, so I felt uh, as if I had an in-group identity that was very separate from people who had voted for George Bush or people who had voted for um, Al Gore. And this is on September uh, 10th of 2001. And so my in-group is like this. Well, probably a little more like this. <coughs> Okay, this is my political in-group. Um, guess what happens? 
One day later, September 11th, 2001, I was on board, right? So this collective threat that was made against all Americans suddenly threw me into, you know, it created this massive in-group that I felt that I was part of Americans, that, you know, my interests and my identity was much more closely tied to these people as a result of that external threat, right? So our, our in-group membership changes and fluctuates. And of course, we're part of all kinds of in-groups. You're part of an in-group in this class, right? Your fellow classmates are part of your in-group. But so are your fellow classmates at the entire college, right? And you would consider somebody from PSU uh, an out-group member. But you're also a, an in-group member with them because they're undergraduate students, right? So we've got these kinds of, it's, it's, not, it's not as rigid as it kind of seems. I mean, ultimately, our, our basic in-group is ourself. And then everything else comes outside that, bless you. But, um, but we kind of, we change our in-group membership because of the function of the situation, right? In my family, that's my in-group when I'm at a family event. Um, when I'm with my friends, they're more my in-group than my family, although my family stays in my in-group, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, everybody's going to be different. It wasn't for me. There was no difference at that point, you know, on the afternoon of September 11th. Yeah, yeah. So the situation is going to throw you into different kinds of group memberships. Um, Why don't we quit there? It's almost 10 of. Um, so we'll pick up on Tuesday. Yeah. Have a good weekend. Thank you.